0: Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with
1: host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Very different year this year for most of us. I'll tell you, I'm ready for this 2020 thing to come to an end. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, Thanksgiving was great. Love the stuffing and turkey and all that fun stuff. Cool, cool. So you went ahead and did a dinner and all of that type of thing.
0: Oh, yeah, might as
1: well. I mean, you know, it's a lot of fun. I like cooking. Yeah, well, I like cooking the recipes that we have that we only use at Thanksgiving. So it's like, you know. Right. right. No, that makes sense. Bill, you cook up something?
2: Uh, No, I actually just spent it with my cats because family goes with other family. And I stay here and take care of the pets.
0: You know, so, are the pets what... cheery? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the cats.
0: <laughs> the cats. <laughs> you, you, you tell me what they are. <laughs> I don't know. My don't know. cats are my cheery. And sometimes cheery?
1: it's. Uh... <laughs> They're fuzzy buddies. <laughs> you, you should introduce more catnip. <laughs> yeah, there you are. There you are. Well, this week we're going to have a look back show. Uh oh, clip show time. Oh no. But we're going to look at some of our past interviews. Um, you know, it actually is a lot of fun to do this. We do these a couple of times a year. And we get some really good guests out there. And this year has been no different, even with COVID and everything else. So with no further ado, let's take a look and see what we got. This week's show is sponsored by We Are Technology. We Are Technology is your one-stop shop for application development. In this day and age with COVID, with many of our businesses having to move online, we can help you with that in a cost-effective way. Get your clients something to do through your website, increase their experience, put together a phone app, get your website to accept payments, or come up with something new. Give us a call, wearetechnology.com.
2: So we're going to jump right in and join Bill, Jeremy, and Gretchen with their interview of Phil Ortiz.
1: Hi, Hi.
2: how are you doing?
1: We are well now that we got through our little technical thing there. (laughs) How are you doing this morning? Uh
3: Uh-oh from a convention uh, uh, that went very, very well, and uh, I, I sold a lot of my uh, my art, original art. Now, now I'm busy uh, <laughs> replenishing my art supplies, my my <laughs> original art, because I have another convention coming up uh, this weekend. Well, that's always a good over thing in and
0: sell your original stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I I I've come to learn that. People go to conventions usually for, uh, you know, to purchase original art, and they like to see the artist draw in front of them. And uh, you know, it's it's really uh, a lost art. What would I do in particular? Right. It's a long story, but um, but they love uh, people, artists who who, uh, who draw in front in front of them.
1: No, that sounds amazing. So, I know you've worked on a lot of animated projects. Uh, tell us about one that you're proud of.
3: Um, geez. Well, I've been, uh, illustrating. I've been a uh, professional cartoonist since 1978. Um, but I'd have to say, well, yeah, The Simpsons is, uh, probably the best gig of my entire professional life because, uh, um, it, it took on a lot of controversial, um, topics, and it was considered like a milestone for television, just like, you know, all the family was a milestone, Mary Tyler Moore was a, was a milestone, so I guess uh, The Simpsons were a milestone for for animation, for television animation.
1: No, absolutely, I would have to agree, I'm a, I'm a huge fan.
0: And we've even seen you, actually, at one of the Comic Cons do a drawing for um, a panel, and it, it was really fun to watch you draw.
3: oh yes yes i i I give as many panels as possible when i when i go to comic con
1: yeah absolutely absolutely so now which medium do you work uh, in best film or printed do you think
3: uh is that film or what film or printed print uh printed meaning can you specify a little
0: like the comic books i i when i did research
3: oh oh i see uh yeah i i'm still doing the simpson comics after 20, this is my 24th year. Oh, doing wow. That, <laughs> I, I just finished issue 242. Wow. So, uh, but, you know, there are, uh, maybe two, three more freelancers that, uh, pick up comic art. So, but uh, out of the 242, I, I may have touched on at least 200 of them. That's still a lot. That's amazing. And even if the, uh, the show is canceled, the comics will keep going on.
0: I'm having a hard time believing the show's going to be canceled. It's 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 gone on pretty well. You've even lost um, actors, you know, but it still goes on. Oh,
3: yeah. You mean voice voiceover actors? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, two main ones passed away: Marshall Wallace, who did the voice of Mrs. Krabappel, and uh, Phil Hartman. Way back at the beginning, um, he did several uh, voices too, and he Phil Hartman was supposed to be a shoe in to be the voice of Zap Brannigan in Future Oh, like, but, really. But you know the 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 facts about what happened to Phil Hartman. Yeah. So uh uh they had uh um the woman who does the voice of Fry oh jeez uh, his name eludes me. The guy
0: who does but Fry? He,
3: uh, isn't that Billy West? Billy West Billy West, yes. And he ended up doing uh Zap Brannigan but he he sounds like Phil Hartman, <laughs> as it is, so I think... Uh, yeah, he fooled he me. Right <laughs> yeah, uh, right. He, uh, he does uh, several uh, cartoon shows. Uh, he lends his voice to several shows.
0: So I have a question for you. So for yeah. people who wish to follow in your footsteps, what kind of advice would you offer them? How best can they prepare for a successful career like yours?
3: Well, for animation... Um, they do have classes uh and they have schools professional schools uh such as CalArts art here southern california and they have classes in animation in some high schools oh really uh, I wish yes i wish there, they had those classes when I was going to high school. <laughs> I would have taken them but uh uh there are various uh uh sources on how to uh animate and storyboard and layouts and and um, design. So um, my advice is if you want to learn how to draw correctly, you have to take two classes, uh, perspective drawing and life drawing or figure drawing. Um, those two go hand in hand. And uh, believe it or not, that's what the big studios are looking for, for people who can do that. Wow. So who have taken those classes. Yes.
0: Yeah. That makes and, a lot of uh, sense.
3: Right, and my other advice is when I give talks to children at uh, grammar schools for, let's say, for career day, I tell them, don't throw any of your drawings away, no matter how bad you think it it looks. Keep them all, because when you become a rich and famous, (laughs) (laughs) uh, they're they're, they're going to want to do a documentary on you, and they're going to ask your early work. And uh I regret that my mom accidentally tossed a lot of my <laughs> grammar school artwork. And I was just uh, an A-plus student in 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 uh in art. Aww. Yeah, but there's nothing I could do about it now. But it wasn't intentional. I mean, she just thought it was something that, you know, was headed for the trash or something. <laughs> she didn't look in certain... No, I had them in boxes, and I guess she didn't open the box and,
1: I, that's well, ha- it happens, I'll tell you. And, uh, I, I can go into stories on that myself, but I won't. <laughs> yeah, favorite toys being thrown away <laughs> oh, by yeah.
3: parents. Oh, no. For some, for, for some people, it's like comic books. You know, the parents throw old comics and things like that. And But, uh, you know, I was just unfortunate to, to put those things in the box. If they were exposed, I mean, out of a box or something, she would have saved them. So, right. Oh, well.
1: Well, well huh. you know. It happens, and it's always that item that's worth a hundred thousand dollars. It seems.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, they could go that high, yeah. So, mm. well, I uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I mean, I've uh, I sensed that I was going to be having a profession in in uh, cartooning ever since kindergarten. What, um,
0: what what made you what made you sense that?
3: Well, uh, when I was in kindergarten, I remember I, a lot of facts about kindergarten. Uh, uh, when I started this, uh, kindergarten, I, there was a table and a round table. I even remember the shape. It was a round table with a little mound of, of coloring books. And those old Crayola crayons, you know the ones that are like an inch thick? Yeah. Those real, real fat ones. I used to kind of nibble on them and put salt on them and chew on so <laughs> No, I'm uh, But, uh, no, they, uh, I was the second and last one in line. And so there were only like two left. And, uh, the one I ended up picking up was the original version of, uh, the original adaptation of Disney's, uh, uh, Shaggy Dog, the movie. Because this was 1959. So, I, I, uh, I started, you know, coloring and I figured this is really interesting. It's entertaining. And, um, I just thought yellow was a very bright, comfortable, warm color. So I started coloring the people's complexions in the coloring books yellow, and I don't know if, it's a, if it was a premonition or whatever that I ended up doing, working on the Spinsons were yellow characters. But I don't know; it's just a coincidence or whatever. But uh.
1: we'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Joining me today is Crit and Crit. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. So, before we get going on our screenplay uh, contest that we were going to talk about here in a little bit, give us a little bit on your background. I know you've been on the show before, but it's been a little while. So, for anybody that's new, um, tell us about what you've done. I know there's a lot of exciting things.
2: Well, I got in the movie business back in 1981. So... A long time ago it was the heyday of special effects, all the different practical effects, there were no computers, there wasn't any of that kind of CGI type stuff and so everything that had to be done and made and stuff had to be made by us and make it work. So we really were grounded in the practical application and and physical solutions to all of the wonderful effects that we saw in in early movies. Um I began doing that and did all kinds of movies for, I don't know, 10, 12 years until the computer did come in. And at that time, all of us basically in mass saw the future coming and we had to kind of reinvent ourselves. A handful of people stayed doing practical effects, but most everybody else segued into something, obviously computer. I segued into story and screenplays and how the movies uh, actually began. I mean, it was always a mystery to me, not a mystery, but kind of an interesting thing to me that's like, well, we're making all this stuff, you know, this monster or this spaceship, but where did it come from? Why, you know, where, where did we get this? And it was interesting for me to see that it came from this story, this idea that somebody had this initial kernel of a thought that then turned into a screenplay, a script. And then from there, it all got doled out down the line for people to make or invent and stuff. So, I went that route to kind of go to the source of the story, the source of, uh, where the movie was even coming from and learned how it was structured and how Hollywood puts it together to, uh, basically entertain us, I think, in a standard and a type of format, I guess it would be, that's used all around the world. I think we can tell kind of a difference when we see like a European movie, but for the most part, everyone follows this kind of generic, um, Form that Hollywood pioneered, and so i I started in that and and learned from who I think was the best and Now I teach at the largest university here in Utah, Utah Valley University. I teach all of those principles of screenwriting and uh, and script writing here at the university
1: yeah, and I know uh, you and I have been working together on some software and some different things over a little bit now, which is definitely where the computer has changed a lot of the things we work on. And I guess my next question for you would be, is back when you were working on set and all of that type of thing, if you had to pick a favorite project, tell us a little bit about that and some of the things you enjoyed doing. I
2: think when I get asked that question, uh, my mind defaults to uh, John Carpenter's um, Prince of Darkness and, of course, uh, Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. Um, I think Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter is such a great guy to work for that it was just so relaxing and so, uh, I don't know about relaxing, because film sets are anything but relaxing, but everything seemed to be organized, and he he was so um, attentive to everyone that I that sticks out in my mind as one of the best experiences that I had making films. And then Tim Burton was kind of the same way, I mean, very creative and, and very energetic, you know. Um, and then, of course, Beetlejuice had so many strange things, and it was always something new, and it evolved as we did it. So obviously then Beetlejuice went on to be as popular as it is now, which I think probably enhances the memory. You know, it may right. not have been quite as good as we thought, but, um, but it was really good. And it was a lot of friends that I had on that film. I actually turned it down three times because it was such a strange screenplay, really? such a strange story. Yeah, you couldn't make heads or tails of it, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it was like, oh, this'll just be ridiculous. But I had a bunch of a bunch of my really close friends were already working on it and they said, No, 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 you have to come down here. You've got to come and see, you know, what's really happening. And so finally I I did and I went down there and I'm sure glad I did. It turned out to be such a great experience. But yeah, I would say those two films really stick out and and it I, I wanna come back and say, well, it was about the cool things that we made and all that. But really, it was the people. I mean, everybody on Beetlejuice, um, like I say, from Tim Burton down to Robert Short, Robert Short's Productions, um, and all the people that I worked with really, really made a lasting impression, and and it sticks with me today. And getting into the storyline
1: and the base of all of that now and teaching film, if somebody has a screenplay or wants to get involved, how would they even get started?
2: Well, I mean, and that is the question, and that's where I lead off into my class every semester is, how do we cross this river of impossibility? How do we deal with this chasm of no that the world gives us? Um, It doesn't matter what you want to do in life. Someone out there is going to try and tell you no. You're not tall enough. You're not good looking enough. You're not strong enough. Whatever it is, even if it's not true, for some reason, people default to this chasm of no. Um, And so... I have found that the best thing to do, number one, of course, is go ahead and write it. Don't worry about what if you can find a home for it or not. Write it because once you have it, somehow the universe does open up and you find a home for it. What you would do then is you'd begin to uh, look at film festivals. I have found to be the the best first step in a lot of ways. Film festivals now, they're mostly all picking up on the concept of un unpublished uh, screenplays or new screenplays used to be film festivals were just for films right now they almost all have a contest for screenplays it allows you to get your screenplay out there and get it read you get coverage whether you win or not doesn't always matter because you get coverage for it people write it up it becomes in the literature you know people look at the film festival here the here are the screenplays that entered here's your name being published on the internet and so i think that's a a a big start and then there's some other uh online presence that people can look at as well for unpublished screenplays
1: now that sounds absolutely incredible now it's a very interesting thing that there's more than just seeing movies at a film festival not something i knew either so uh that sounds like a great place to get started with that type of a thing and i know upcoming we're going to have you back on here and we're going to be doing some things where it might be possible for our listeners to submit their screenplay so we'll talk about that a little bit more a little later in the year, but Crit, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so much for this information. Thank you very much. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. User-Friendly 2.0. This is Bill Sickens. We're back. Jeremy and Gretchen are here with us. Hello. Hello. And we are here at a display from NASA where we're looking at the Mars rover. Now, I know you and I talked a little bit before the show, and this is about the size of a car. And maybe we could start with a little bit of the background and the, the, how this got so
4: big. So, our Mars rovers started small, right? We, we started back in the late 90s with a little rover called Sojourner. Um, you may have seen Bart Simpson using it as a skateboard in The, in the Simpsons <laughs> once, right? Um, and it was like an engineering test. But we learned a whole bunch. And, in fact, the suspension system from that tiny little rover back in the 90s is identical to the suspension system we now use 20-plus you know, years later on a rover that weighs 2,000 pounds right. and is about the size of a Mini Cooper.
1: So is it really the original suspension? Did you make it bigger to adjust to the it, size? It, or?
4: It's a lot bigger. Right. In fact, the wheels were exactly four times bigger. But as a design, it's essentially scaled up.
1: Now, that is really cool. And the other thing I know you were telling me about a little bit is how this is all powered.
4: Yeah, so, um, between Sojourner and this big Curiosity rover, we had two rovers called Spirit and Opportunity. And they were both solar powered. And every winter, we would have to find north facing slopes to camp on to survive through the cold winter. And when dust storms came, we'd be really nervous. And in fact, it was a dust storm that killed the Opportunity rover last year.
1: That I actually took it
4: out. Yeah. Finally, and yeah. This rover survived that dust storm and genuinely didn't care. Right. Right. Because we're not solar powered, we use what's known as an RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. It uses plutonium, not as like a nuclear reactor, just a natural decay of plutonium 238 that puts out a whole bunch of heat. Okay. And we have the hot rock in the middle. We have fins that are exposed to the cold air on the outside. And that gradient of temperature is enough to generate about 85 watts of electricity. Use something called the thermoelectric effect. Right. right? Now, those 85 watts aren't enough to run the rover all on its own. And so inside the rover, we also have a big lithium battery. And we use the RTG kind of like a trickle charger. So we'll wake the rover up in the morning. We'll be awake for four to six hours, depending on what we're actually doing. Then we'll go to sleep. We trickle-charging the battery, wake up again, do a communications pass, take another nap, right? And so the rover, you know, much like a cat, spends most of its life napping and right, right. recharging, right? Yes,
1: an idea that I actually totally can support, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I, you know, I was listening to the part where you said that the dust storm took out one of the rovers. Okay, so I have, like, a stupid idea. Can you send one of these up with, like, a, a little um, brush to clean off the... the so the yeah. So so it's stuff?
4: like, why, why didn't you have something to clean them, right? Yeah. Right, so the problem so that mission opportunity mm-hmm. the requirement was for it to last 90 days mm-hmm. at 14 years yes. <laughs> a dust storm took it out right yeah, and so, so, it, really so it, it did fine right <laughs> um, but you could say you know what uh, windshield wipers um, or get the solar panels and, and, and rattle them around mm-hmm. or like film on the front you can wind across right um, all of those costs and it's not only the money it's the weight it's the power they need It's the complexity and the risks they bring with them. What if your windshield wiper got stuck in the middle or it was just scratching the glass and making it even worse, right? Um, And so, better is the enemy of good enough, right? We got our 90 days and a little bit more. Yeah, just a touch, you got Uh, lot of my car. Another (laughs) 5,100 and some odd days. But there's also the, could you go and fix it? Well, if you want to go and fix it, you'd be sending another rover that's now 15, 20 years newer, that rover is going to be way more capable than that old one. Right. Why not just send the new rover? Yeah. Right. So it seems like there just is a lifespan,
1: and that's yeah, that's yeah. what you're dealing I mean, with.
4: Curiosity was designed to last two years. We're at seven years. In fact, today it is sold 2,500 of our right, right. mission, and she's still going great. Right. And we're getting better at operating her every single year. Um, we're getting more efficient. We're understanding exactly how much power everything takes a bit more accurately. We're getting a little braver when it comes to dipping into that battery. And so we could get another seven years out of it, no problem at all.
1: Now, you were talking a little bit about the communications pass. How do you get the information
4: back, and how does that work? So the one problem we can't get over is the speed of light, right? It doesn't matter what we do. It's still going to take something between 5 or 22-ish minutes for signal to get from Earth to Mars right. and from Mars back to Earth again. And we'd love to sit at our desk with a joystick and drive this thing around and point the cameras <laughs> and zap the rocks, But we can't do that. And so what we do is when the rover wakes up in the morning, we send commands directly from the Earth straight to the rover. Right. It's got a small antenna that it can point at the Earth to receive those instructions. And it takes about 20 minutes or so for basically us to send it a big email saying, hey, here's what we want you to do today. Right. And that has a read receipt on it. And the read receipt is it turns its radio back on for five minutes, goes beep, and we go, great, it hurt us. It's now using these new commands. Like the first command is, turn your radio on for five minutes. Right? And so that's called the beep. Then the rover goes about and does its thing. It might be driving. It might be using the cameras and the laser spectrometer. It might be getting the robotic arm out to look at some rocks. It might be using the labs inside the rover with samples it's already got. But then about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, one of our Mars orbiters will fly overhead. And they're not just useful for science, we use them as relay satellites. Right. And so for about 12 minutes or so, we use a different antenna, and we can dump a huge amount of data up to the orbiter in one go, and then it's the orbiter's job to send it home because it's got big solar panels and a massive radio dish. And so in terms of, the kind of efficiency of getting data home, it's way, way better than us trying to trickle it home ourselves through a small antenna.
1: Okay, so you actually have two methodologies then really in place to be able to communicate. Yes, yeah. And the one would be just like a communication satellite we use here. Yes. So that's cool. So tell us a little... We'll be back after the break. Our first interview is going to talk about what's involved in cosplay and getting into the costume contest, and our guest is the director of that department for the show. So with no further ado, live to the floor Silicon Valley Comic Con 2019.
5: Have on, on my events, they're people that have no clue. They have no idea they're joining a costume contest until I approach them mm-hmm. and invite them in.
1: So now that's right. interesting. You actually go out and invite people to come in. It's not just yeah. to sign up.
5: Yeah, we we you know we'll sit at the table, but we also walk around. And if we see something that catches our eye, we'll encourage them to come over to the table and sign up. Some people, you know, they do their costumes because they want to do the costume contest mm-hmm. to see you know how they how they, how how it works. Mm-hmm. Some people they just want to walk across the stage. They don't care if they win a prize or right. not. They just wanna they just want people to see it. And with our, our venue here, it's recorded, it's shown, and so they can go home and they can they can review the Thing and they can relive their you know their moment on yeah. stage. Their yeah. moment on stage.
1: I know personally, it's very for us. It's been very addictive, at least in the sense. Once you get out there, it's just like it's one of the coolest things you yeah. can do. Cosplay and I, being able to show off is uh, yeah,
5: yeah. is important. So yesterday, I had a family come up and they were all dressed, but we had meet, reached our capacity. Right. But the little girl was just too too cute. They had just left just coming yeah. up. And I says, "Go get them. They're good. I'm, I'm gonna, because I'm in charge. I can make that call." <laughs> right, right, right. Of course, yeah. you see something special or phenomenal, I'll go over what my limits are. Right. And half nine times out of ten, you know, they might win. Some, you know, they'll win something. But then at the next event, I'll see them come back on their own, and that's always that's always fun. And then watching people who've been doing it for a while and then they get pointers from the judges on how to improve or you know be more confident. And it's amazing to watch the transformation from event to event as they, they as they learn and they grow and they feel more comfortable and they have fun. And that's the biggest that's the biggest key to the costume contest is to have fun doing it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. The trophies are just a little perk, you know. They're not they're not always, you know, there. But we have fun. We get people out there. We, you know, they have fun.
1: I think from one of the things I've been seeing here especially is the quality of a lot of the cosplays is just through the roof. I mean, yes. you see some just incredible. It's like it could come off a movie screen type things.
0: Yes. <laughs> So yes. this, this is a great event all around the mixing of the science and the arts together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's extra
1: special. It's so if you happy. have someone that would like to do a costume or a cosplay, how do they get started?
5: Well, they they look at the character. If they're, if they're going after somebody specific from a show or a comic strip or a movie, look at the character. Is it somebody they would feel comfortable making... A representation of and then do they want to be like an exact copy of that person or do they want to personalize it and make it into their own and yeah. that you know there is a little bit of a planning I've had I've had kids come in with sketchbooks of how they started before they even went to the fabric store to get fabric or the supply store to get the the foam and the other parts for creating creating an album. I know some of the
1: mashups like what you're talking about are some of the funnest things. Uh, there, there's one here that's one of the most unique which I believe he is Mick Thor. And uh, it's Ronald McDonald and Thor like from the movie. Yes. And
5: <laughs> I liked the Native American Captain America. Yeah. yeah. I thought he was really interesting. He was. Yeah. He, he really surprised me. I didn't see him when he signed up but when he went across oh, the stage ahead I'm ahead. like <laughs> I'm like how did I miss this <laughs> <one?"> <laughs> Because that, again, would have been one that I would have said, Hey, come on over and, you know. Yeah, join the fun. Come join the fun. Because people will find the unique. They will find the piece that makes it them and personalizes it into, I'm going to make this character, I'm going to create it, I'm going to have fun. And I'm gonna own it. Yeah. I'm gonna make this costume, and I'm gonna own
0: it. I, I've kind of done it with uh, my Jedi character. It's yeah. It's it's a race that you don't you only see in one episode of one of the cartoons,
5: mm-hmm. and uh, I just like the
0: character.
1: But it doesn't matter because there's no yeah. rules on that. You do what there's you it. like.
5: Exactly. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you may have a contest that is somewhat themed. You know, like focusing on just anime or a certain type of anime or you know we'll have mostly we keep it pretty much open but we'll like do most original anime which is like something that closest resembles an anime show that's out there right that's a a original design that's unique you know and they're doing their best to represent the theme of the event so
1: how do your categories work here? I know we talked a little bit about some of the different things for amateur to professional and you had a very unique way from anything we've seen before of being able to divide that out and it seems like something that would really give everybody the ability to jump in and participate.
5: Well, we, we, ha- we have the, the categories for levels of creativity. We also offer best of show, best, of, best group, um, best portrayal of the event and then we also have judges choice where our judges can pick their favorite and we and then we had the audience choice award the the characters that went across that made the most impact to the audience and their presence on stage and they they, they received the the audience or the, the two officers in the big popper boxes you know that <laughs> those were really unique and with the with the categories the novice is if, if you've never been in a, in a contest before and you haven't won anything that's considered a novice um, the next level the intermediate journeyman you've entered 3 to 5 contests and you've won at least once okay um, for the master, you, you know, you have, had, you'll need to have won at least three or four times at various events. Doesn't have to be in your level, you know. You, you may, and we, you know, this, this year we did something a little different. We had the best newcomer. That's cool. Somebody who had never participated before. It was their very first time making an outfit and, and having that energy to come up and go across the stage with their, with their... You know the outfit on, and you know it's fun watching the people go, and watching them straighten up and just get that proud moment of "I got this," and it's it's really fun. So, any advice for next year? For next year, don't be shy. Come sign up
1: (laughs) and sign up early because it does fill up. Yes,
5: yes,
1: it does. (laughs) So, anything else you want to tell us? Um,
5: Be creative. Make something that makes you happy, and be brave enough to share it with others. Come sign up for the contest. So
1: something to check out for next year, definitely, and go online and check it out for this year at SVCC hashtag SVCC. This is user-friendly recording live at the Silicon Valley Comic Con. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. You know, clip shows are actually kind of a lot of fun sometimes. It is fun to look back, and we've been doing this for a while, and have gotten some incredible people on. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of fun how these things stay relevant, like The Simpsons. And when you talk about Silicon Valley now, Silicon, it's, uh, you know, kind of interesting to see the blend of all that going together. Crit's always been wonderful to have on the show. And, You know, going forward, um, I'm going to start this with you, Gretchen. If you had to pick just anyone and they would do it, who would you want to interview? Um, actually, my choice would be George Lucas. Okay, I can't say Um, that comes as a shock.
0: (laughs) No, (laughs) no. And actually, I, I think he would be a wonderful person to sit down and have a conversation with. Um, just, just there's just so much history there with the creations and. Of the of the uh, franchise that he made. And then there's companies like ILM, right. all of the fantastic things they've done for not just the Star Wars movies, but other movies. So when you watch films, I'll often see ILM as being, you know, a contributor to making some film really awesome. No. Um, and I think if I had a second choice, I, I, I wouldn't mind having a conversation with Dave
1: Filoni. OK, that'd be I, cool. I can't say that comes as a shock either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now Dave Filoni is the individual we got to see at comic-con a few years ago with the new uh star wars cartoon wasn't he uh-huh. yes yeah
0: yeah okay. he was saying that they were
1: going to complete it and boy did they do an awesome job yeah no I think I think he'd be a neat person they both both would be great all right Jeremy your turn who would you want to interview I'd really like to interview Adam Savage I think that'd be kind of fun okay so tell us a little bit about Adam Savage I know you did the builder uh workshop with him Okay, well, you know, he he started out making props and things for commercials and TV and movies, and then moved into uh, acting on television with Mythbusters and building things. They built all kinds of stuff. It's like, you know, whenever they had a a themed show, he had a costume for it. And I kind of think that's really cool. And now he's, you know, uh, in his cave in San Francisco, filming things, building this, fixing that, and, you know, doing stuff that's still making props and entertaining and doing things. And I think that's really cool. And I want to talk to him about it. Now I heard, So r- Bill, I, I, I'm going to tell you in just a minute here, right when we get to the end, but okay. I heard a rumor that they're doing another builder workshop. I, I, as far as I know, they are, I don't have a whole lot of information about that, but if they do, I want to participate. So, who would I like to interview, Gretchen? I think that's what you were going to ask me. Yes, that's just about. Exactly what I, yeah, <laughs>
3: you
0: yeah. know, there's
1: a couple of people that I really like their work, and this won't come as a shock to anybody that knows me, but Tom Ellis and Leslie Ann Bryant uh, from The Lucifer Show, and they've done a number of other things as well. Absolutely incredible performers. And another person I'd love to talk to, if I could just pick anybody, would be Freddie Prince Jr. I mean, not only is he great at production and the, the work he's done, But he's also an excellent chef, which is not something that everybody knows about. So, you know, be cool. We'll see what's coming up here in the next little bit. And give us a call and let you know what you think. 503-766-6264. One user-friendly on Facebook and Twitter. Until next week, this is User Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2020, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. The views and opinions expressed in this show are those of the hosts and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting provided by WeAreTechnology.com.
4: Podcast available at TheAnswerPortland.com or UserFriendlyShow.com.